0: Thanks for tuning in and making Res Life a part of your day. Whether this is your first time listening or this is a part of your weekly rhythm, we are glad you're here. If you'd like to connect more throughout the week, check us out at reslife.org, download our app, or follow us on social media. It's time for today's message, so let's dive in. Good evening. It's good to be good to be back. Tonight we've got a, a pretty straightforward, just work through the scriptures, a real straightforward message. I, this is one of these types of messages that I, I would love to just travel around and just share this at every single church across the country. I, I think it's such a now word. I feel like this is, um, I mean, this is something the Lord is speaking to, particularly the American church, but really the global church Um, At this moment, the title of the message is Recovering the Maranatha Plumb Line. It's a little bit of a confusing title. So, I was uh, in construction. I mean, I say construction, I was a decorative painter for 20 some odd years. So, you know, working on construction sites, painters don't really do too much heavy lifting, but um, we just listen to Rush Limb all day and get angry. Huff paint fumes. But um, a plumb line, for those of you who are not familiar, what a plumb line is, is, you know, for masons, and of course they've been using this forever, is a real simple tool. You've got a string, and through the power of gravity, you've got a little weight on the bottom, and that's always going to be level. I mean, that's all it takes for a level line. And so masons will set up a whole bunch of string lines and plumb lines simply to gauge whether or not they are... Staying straight. And of course, you know, if you get off a little bit, that's a small wall, it's not a big deal. You know, if you have a real tall building or something like that, every little fraction of getting off is critical. So a plumb line is something that you use as a measure of standard to make sure that you're in line with where you should be. And so the, the word maranatha, it's actually a, an Aramaic term. And it was one of the primary declarations of the early church. Okay, so when you read in the New Testament, you see different declarations. Obviously, we see hallelujah. That's a Hebrew word, which means praise the Lord. And the modern Western church has the hallelujah down. Like, we're really good at the hallelujah. We're great at praise the Lord, contemporary Christian worship, and so forth. Um, Some of us are familiar, obviously, with Hosanna which means, you know, Lord, save us. We see them shouting Hosanna when Jesus is entering Jerusalem, sort of Hosanna, save us. There was this expectation that when the Messiah came, he would throw off the oppressive, uh, the Romans, the occupiers and this type of thing. But I would say Maranatha, and you know, we as Christians were somewhat familiar with the term, you know, there's like you know, the Maranatha Christian Academy, or, you know, like we hear the term thrown around, but we don't always know what it means. So again, it was an Aramaic term. So Aramaic is the common language that the Jews spoke after they had returned from the Babylonian exile. So they would have spoken spoke Aramaic, they would have spoken Hebrew more in the context of the synagogue in a liturgical, sacred context. And then of course, Greek would have been very common as well. Um, ever since the Greeks had sort of Hellenized and dominated so much of the Middle East. But Aramaic was sort of the er- everyday language of most Jews. And so the word uh, Maranath, it's really a composite of two different words. So you have Mar, mar which means Lord, and then Ata, which means come. So Lord, come. It's very simple. And scholars think that, I mean, they sort of debate exactly what Maranatha means, but they say it was probably a liturgical term, which really, in so many ways, it encapsulates the fullness of the gospel. It encapsulates the fullness of the Christian message. So they would say it means really two things. Well, you could say three things. It's the Lord has come. So depending on which syllable you emphasize, it it can be a declaration that says the Lord has come. which we all say yes amen he came he has made atonement for us he came for sin to make atonement for sin but it's not just the Lord has come it's the Lord is coming he's coming back so he has come he is coming and in these two statements we really have the fullness of the Christian message oftentimes today the modern Christian gospel it's the Lord has come we go yes but that's not the end of the story it's not the end of the story. The Lord has come, but He's coming back. I—it's um, slightly inappropriate, but I always tell this because it's funny, and it—and it—it uh, hits home. I mean, it makes sense. But so I was in Scotland several years back. It might have been sh- might have been around the time I was here four years ago, and um, I was sharing this message, and I was saying like so many Christians teach that. The kingdom of God is now. We're in the kingdom of God. And it sort of minimizes the actual physical kingdom of God that will be established on the earth when Jesus comes back. So much of the emphasis is placed on the now. Now that's, that's kind of inevitable because we're here now, so this is obviously where we're going to tend to focus. But theologically, the scriptures, the overwhelming weight of the scriptures, it's looking forward it's looking forward to the restoration of all things, to the, the regeneration, to the resurrection. And so I was speaking of these things and how this is sort of a controversial issue within the church, and after I was done speaking, this little, sweet, little, white-haired, I don't know if she, I can't remember if she was Scottish or Irish, blue eyes, and she just walks up, and, and she said, oh, Joel, you're so right. Does that sound, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you're so right. She said, because if the the kingdom is now, if the millennium is now, then the millennium really sucks. (laughs) And I was like, she gets it. This is the whole point. It's like, if this is all there is, then our gospel, it's not really all that appealing. It's like, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's better It's better than when we were not saved, but there's so much more, and the gospel holds out, so much more hope. It's so rich with anticipation, and so the the creedal element of Maranatha was the Lord has come, he is coming, and then it's a cry, come Lord Jesus, and this is the cry that I am absolutely convinced that the church today needs to recover, we need to recover, This declaration and this cry, this groan that was clearly evident within the early church. I believe it was one of the primary driving factors that allowed the early church to turn the ancient world upside down in just a generation. And I think the lack of the Maranatha cry is one of the most significant problems in the church today. We are so focused on the now, we've lost touch with the yet to come, if that makes sense, because there is so much that is yet to come. So I'm going to start out in Genesis 3.15. This is really where so many theological tracts start. If you want to study what does the Bible say about the coming of the Messiah, what does it promise, everything starts at Genesis 3.15. Scholars sometimes call this the first gospel. It's the first place that the gospel is, it's just in seed form, in kernel form, it's in, in introductory form, the gospel, the good news is introduced. So Adam and Eve had sinned. They had disobeyed God. Uh, you know, and he was just he was like I gave you one rule. You know, like you can enjoy everything but don't eat from this tree. And of course they disobeyed and immediately tasted the bitter regret that comes with disobedience. I um I just turned 50 and uh <clears throat> turned 50 back in March, and uh, I tell this story just to demonstrate what an idiot I am, but um, so I was at, you know, one of these like fairs, Um, anyway, you know, they have these like, it's like a ladder on this swivel thing, and you try to climb up, and well, I did it, and I was like so proud of myself, because again, I was a painter for 20 years, so I'm good on the ladder, and so, you know, I went up this thing and rung the bell, and then I got on the the bouncy house that's under it, and I jumped and did a backflip. And my 11-year-old son was like, you're the only dad that I know that can do a backflip. And it was like, you know, maybe a week after my 50th birthday. So I was like very proud. Pride comes before a fall. And so then I was home, and he's like, yeah, but you can't do it on the ground. And I was like, heck, I can't. And uh, so we get out the little... stupid like gymnastics mat that's about three inches thick put that on the grass and with full confidence I flung myself up into the air and and, he, and we filmed it in slow motion and I just landed directly on my head and I actually I actually broke my neck but um it's not that bad <laughs> I'm fine now um it just I broke the uh, the The transverse process, the little thing that sticks out. And um, and the whole right side of my body went numb. And I was laying there, and I have had dozens of these throughout my life. Immediately, within seconds, idiot, 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 stupid, 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 moron, moron. What were you thinking? What were you thinking? Okay, how many can identify? What was I thinking? Think, Think of Adam and Eve. Think of this. And guys, Adam and Eve lived a long time after the fall, like hundreds of years. And Adam, for the rest of their life, they were filled with bitter regret. They had tasted Eden. They had lived and experienced perfection in a way that none of, we can't even really wrap our heads around what they experienced. And through disobedience, they dealt with that. Moron, moron. Like, you know, 300 years later, Adam's like, stupid, stupid. But the Lord is so gracious with us in our rebellion and our idiocy. As soon as the fall happens, the Lord interjects. This is where Genesis 3.15 starts. The Lord makes this declaration to the serpent. He says, I'm going to put enmity, conflict, between you and the woman. So he starts out, there's going to be history from this point forward, from the point of Genesis 3.15, history will be defined by an ongoing conflict between the righteous and the unrighteous. So he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. That's, some translations will say, your descendants and her descendants, your your seed line and her seed line. The righteous line and the unrighteous line. And then the Lord, and of course, you know, look at Israel's history. It's, that's this story of God's chosen people versus Satan's people trying to kill them and exterminate them and wipe them out. But out of the righteous seed line comes one ultimate seed. And the Lord says, he. We don't know much about him. He just says, he is going to crush your head, Satan. And that's good news. It's really good news. And then you're going to strike his heel. So we've got a foreshadowing, again, just in seed form of the cross. You know, he, you, you get one in and you think you're winning. A little nipping at his heel, but he is going to crush your skull. So the Messiah, at the very beginning of the story, is defined as the skull crusher. The snake crusher. That's who he is. But inferred in this statement... Is much more than just Satan's going to get his head crushed. Again, that's good news because he's a jerk. Um, but it's much more than that. The inference here, again, it's all it's all very subtle in seed form. The inference is that the effects of the curse, sin and shame and so many things, death, decay enters the human experience. All of that is going to be reversed, and Eden is going to be restored. So that he, the skull crusher, he doesn't just come and crush Satan's head. He is going to restore Eden. And that's part of the initial promise. That's why this is called the first gospel. It's the introduction of the good news. From this point forward, Adam and Eve... And those that were part of the righteous line. From this day forward, the righteous have always been defined as those that are waiting, those that are looking, those that are longing. So from this day forward, as soon as Eve has a baby, you know, she's, we won't go through all their children, but every time they had a male child, because it says he will crush your head, it doesn't say Z, anyway, um, he, him, they will crush your head, um, From this day forward, it's like, no, Joe. Um, (laughs) Eve, as soon as she, every time she had a male child, it's like, is this the one? Could this be the one? Is he going to be? Is this the one that's going to restore Eden? How long until we no longer have to bring forth fruit from the earth by the toil and the labor and the pain, the sweat of our brow? How long until this insanity is brought to an end? And every time, they're expectant. Now, you go, how do you know that? Where is that clearly in the text? Well, again, some of it is my suspicion. Some of it is inferred. Some of it is clearly in the text. So just two chapters later in Genesis 5, we can see it. We can see the expectation was present among the righteous. So this is Lamech. Lamech was Noah's father. It says Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son. I can't even do a backflip at 50. And he named him Noah. And he says, why does he name him Noah? Because we won't unpack what Noah means. He says, for this one, this one will bring us relief from all of the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. As a result of the curse, we have this agonizing situation. Day after day, groaning just simply to eat, simply to get through, simply to get by. And and, and Lamech was hopeful. Now, of course, Noah was not the one. But you can see this expectation. Could this be the one? He's going to be the one. You know, like maybe if I I speak it, it'll become true. As the popular term these days in secular circles and in church circles, he was trying to manifest his dreams. This one's going to bring us relief. And the Lord says, not yet. But you can see that that expectation was present from the very beginning. Now, we often think, well, Maranatha is a very, you know, come Lord Jesus, it's a very New Testament Christian concept. Well, yes, it is. But the reality is the righteous, as I said, throughout history have always been longing for the promised one to come back and fix everything. That is the hope of the gospel. Really, if you, if you really unpack what the Bible promises with regard to gospel hope, yes, it's the restoration of Eden, and there's a lot in that. It's the restoration of the garden temple paradise. You could say it's an amplified Eden. It's, it's Eden, yay, it's even something better than Eden. And then you combine that with the, the glory Uh, at the time of uh, David's kingdom or even Solomon's kingdom at the height of its glory amplified, combine that with an amplified Eden and you're beginning to get a picture in terms of how the prophets speak of the age to come after the Messiah returns and fixes everything. It is a glorious theocratic kingdom with Jesus on the throne and all of the nations streaming up to Jerusalem to worship the beautiful one. It's a beautiful picture. So Isaiah 40, we're gonna look at some different passages that most folks don't think of in terms of having, embodying the Maranatha cry. Isaiah 40, verse 31. We're all familiar with it. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So we, as Christians often quote or sing this verse in the context of our present experience so life is difficult therefore I'm going to wait on the Lord in my prayer closet or just patiently wait on the Lord and then he'll renew me and I'll have strength for another week or two or whatever for the next year and then I'll get tired again and run out and I'll wait on the Lord and that's a true principle but that's actually not the context. What's being spoken of here is it's saying those who throughout their lifetimes live a life of waiting. Those whose lives are defined by groaning and waiting and yearning and hoping in the Lord. The day is coming when we will be renewed. We will, we, As Lamech says, we will find relief. Okay, and we will mount. So when it's speaking of mounting up on wings like eagles and all of this, it's speaking of the resurrection in the ultimate sense. And the word there in the Hebrew, it's kava. Okay, I don't speak Hebrew, don't pretend to. From the New American Standard Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek Dictionary, it says kava means to wait for. To eagerly await, to expect, to hope, to hopefully await, to look eagerly for, to wait patiently for. So it's not just wait, it's to hope. To those who invest all of their hopes and dreams in the return of Jesus and in the gospel, in the reality that he is coming back. To those who invest their whole lives in this, we will be renewed. Now again, the principle is true. Wait on the Lord, he'll renew us. But that's not the primary meaning. And so you see this throughout the scriptures. Oh, so here's a few different uh, translations. The CSB says those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. The NIV says those who hope in the Lord. The NASB says those who wait on the Lord. See, wait, hope, trust, very, in the English, sort of very different words. But the word chavah, it kind of entails all of the above. It's not just, I'm just waiting, you know tapping my foot. No, it's I'm investing my hopes, my longings, my dreams. I'm laying down my dreams because I believe in a better dream, right? Why did, you know, why, why did we all forsake the temporal pleasures of this world? Why did I quit doing drugs 30 some odd years ago? Because I believe in a much better euphoria. I believe in the, the, the joy that is to come. And, you know, and you go, how are you You're comparing the kingdom of God to drugs? When the prophets speak, it, says, it uses language. It says, sorrow and sighing will flee away. And then it says, gladness and joy will overtake them. You know, like just that concept, that, the, the emotional language there. Gladness and joy will overtake. Overtake us. I think the, the degree to which we will be exceedingly joyful is almost beyond our comprehension. And I actually I don't think it's a bad comparison. People flee to all sorts of things in a hope of attaining some type of relief: um, alcohol, illicit relation, whatever it is that people lean on. And uh, you know it's it's funny the way that we lie to ourselves as Christians. We think, oh, life's really hard. So we tend to lean on these little things thinking, oh, whatever it is, you know, everybody has their, again, alcohol, weed, relationships. I mean, is, is, is weed legal here in Michigan? Yeah. So like this is right, the new pastoral frontier that every parent and pastor is, is dealing with. The utopia that I dreamed of when I was 18 is here, and it's boring and horrible, especially being a parent. But anyway, we lean on all these things and we think it's going to help us get through. No, it's just cumbersome. Now you're trying to finish the race, but now you're dragging along, you know, like a couple extra gallons of milk. Right? Like we think, oh, this is going to make it. No, it's just because it says in Hebrews, right? It says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and let us run the race set before us. And the sin, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles every one of us. Like we need to wreck it. Like, because we, we so focus on, oh, you know, the mainstream media or the education, the, you know, like they, they're, they're telling lies. And I go, yeah, they're telling a lot of lies. But you know what the biggest, most dangerous lie is? It's the lies that we tell ourselves. Those are the worst. Those are the ones that you have to watch out for. Those are the ones we all need to be very aware of. Sorry, that's a little side sermon. Psalm 25, verse 3. Indeed, no one, none of those who wait for the Lord will be ashamed. If you invest your life and lay everything down. Paul the Apostle goes, look, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then we of all people are to be pitied. And he's kind of saying, "Like, look, if the gospel isn't true, because quite frankly, if you really think about it, <clears throat> The idea that our hope, everything that we are emotionally, spiritually, financially investing in, is we believe the day is coming when a divine Jewish God man is going to burst forth from the sky and save us. Yeah, woo! But it's also pretty crazy if you think about it. Like, it's kind of a weird thing to believe. And Paul recognizes that, and then we believe. And when that happens, our rotting, decaying bodies, corpses in the ground, unless we're, hopefully comes back soon, will be raised up out of the ground, clothed with flesh, and we'll live forever. That's a pretty crazy thing to believe too. But the Bible says those of you who are crazy enough to hope in that, Those of you who invest everything in that, who really believe it and live like it's true, you won't be ashamed. We will not be ashamed. And you know, let me just say this because I, you know, I believe it with every shred and every fiber of my being. It's actually the most reasonable thing in the world to believe. It's funny how skepticism and unbelief, um, it masquerades as rational, but it's not. It's actually incredibly irrational. And what we believe actually makes more sense than any other message, philosophy, anything else out there in the world. If Jesus is not coming back from heaven, then this entire thing is the biggest cosmic nightmare imaginable, quite frankly. Philosophically, the only thing that answers all of the deepest questions that humans ask is the divine Jewish God-man bursting forth from heaven to raise up our bodies out of the ground. It's really the only thing that actually makes sense. I don't have time to tease that all out, but I have meditated on it a lot. Psalm 37, verse 9, evildoers, those who mock the idea, oh, you people can worship your sky wizard, right? If you run into those folks on Facebook or whatever, all the atheists today, they're just so confident and cocky. Those people will be cut off. But those who wait, those of us who hope for the Lord, we will inherit the earth. We will inherit the renewed cosmos. We will taste the fruits of Zion. The Lord who made us will not abandon us. And trust me, he made us. Again, I'm not the greatest machine as previously demonstrated, but I am a machine. We all are machines. This is pretty cool. This is like better than a backhoe or a Bobcat or an earth mover, organic computers telling a bunch of tendons and things to, you know, woo, look at this. I mean, like backhoes backhoes can't do that. I can do all kinds of crazy things. We have been designed with purpose. The entire, you go look out, outside, everything around us is designed by an intelligent being who designed the machine to work. We are, um, well, you go outside, trees are oxygen-creating machines, and then we, in turn, are carbon dioxide-creating machines, on and on. Every part of that tree out there, the leaf... The the pith, the bark, the roots, everything is designed for a purpose. The entire earth is a machine, if you will, an organ an organism, an organized organism. And knowing that He created us, he He didn't just do it like some kind of evil creator and go, uh huh. I'm just gonna, you know, let you live out your nightmare and die, and that's the end. And I'm gonna give you this book and lie to you and trick you all, and like he's just some big evil. Like that just is the stupidest. The the idea that there is no God and that we're not designed is the stupidest thing imaginable. I'm sorry, the blind watchmaker's argument, which is what I was just explaining in philosophical terms, it is unimpeachable. It's you can't get around it. We have been designed. And the idea that the one that designed us is anything other than caring for us, again, it's the only thing in the world that makes sense. Psalm 147, verse 11, the Lord actually favors those who fear him. And now this is what's called a parallelism, which means those who fear him are also described as those who wait for his loving kindness. So to fear the Lord is to believe in and wait for and yearn for the day of his appearing, his loving kindness. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. How many want the favor of the Lord on their lives, right? I want the favor of the Lord. So I say, Lord, give me the grace to die to this age, to lay aside every encumbrance and to fully fix my emotional, uh, my emotional thought life, the meditations of my heart and my actions, which prove that I believe what I say I believe. Let my life be defined by being a life of faith. I believe in the things that are, as of now, unseen. Sometimes the Bible says invisible. It's not, it's not invisible like you can't see, like you see through it like it's a ghost. It's invisible in that we don't see it yet, right? Like you go, you have all these promises. Where is it? Like we can't see it yet. It's invisible, but it's real. Faith is a life that lives a life as though we actually believe in the invisible things that we say we believe. Hebrews 9, verse 28, I love this. Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. So here it is, here's the Maranatha cry. He came once with reference to sin. He came once to make atonement. He, ta- he came once to guarantee our future entrance into the kingdom. When he comes, he came to seal It, it is a done deal. But he will appear a second time. His first coming is not complete without the second coming. And he's coming back to save us. He's coming back for the salvation with reference to sin. uh, Not without reference to sin. For who? Who is he coming back for? For those who eagerly await him. It's not just like something that we just, here's the big list of doctrines that as Christians we believe, and one of them is we believe someday he'll return. No, it's at the top of the list of everything that is sacred and central to us as believers as we identify with those throughout the Old Testament from the very beginning. We are those who wait. We are those who eagerly groan and yearn and sigh for his return. And there's a positive and a negative aspect of this. One is we're yearning for the beautiful one. We're yearning to see the one who created us, the one we've been singing about, the one we've been singing to, the one we've been talking to. We yearn to see him robed in splendor. But we also, the negative side, is we're also really looking forward to being done with all of this present insanity. This current age is a mess. The leaders of this age, the rulers and the governors, both humanly and the spiritual principalities, it's a nightmare. (laughs) You're awfully negative, Joel. Yes, I am. I'm 50 and I'm just gonna get angrier. No, just kidding. (laughs) No, I want to be just the opposite. But like the thing of it is, look, there's plenty of beauty and wonder and joy in this age. Don't get me wrong. But there's also a lot of heartbreak. There's also a lot of craziness. And as we're moving forward, and especially the older we are, the more that we are in touch with everything that as a nation we're losing, the older we are, we look out and we go, what in the world World am I even living anymore? I I mean, don't get me wrong, guys, but, and this is not like in a negative, like suicidal, I but I don't want to be here anymore. I don't like what I see. I look out, I'm like, you turn on the news for five seconds, it's like, oh, fentanyl overdoses and all of the just avalanche of gender confusion and then the anger. My poor 11-year-old son, he's, well, he's now in seventh grade. Last year he was in sixth grade sixth grade, and he's got a little 11-year-old girl in his class whose parents are having her go through the process of becoming a boy. My poor little 11-year-old son, he goes to public school, um, he, he came home crying because the counselors yelled at him because he called her a she. And he's like, dad, he's like, I don't know. He's like, she, she's got boobs. I'm like, This is good logic, son. At 11 years old, at 11 years old, you seem to have far more intelligence than the counselor, and I'm going to talk to her. This is the craziness. He's like, I don't know. Like, adults don't know. How are we yelling and screaming at 11-year-old kids and shaming them at school? We expect them to understand the insanity that we're forcing on everyone? And it's not just that. We can go down the list. I can't wait for the end of this stuff. I can't wait for the end of the insanity to turn away from that and then just see the one that I've been yearning for. So there's the negative and the positive. There's both. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, really, a better translation is our citizenship is heavenly. Okay, because really, our citizenship, our the goal of the Christian life is not to escape the earth and just go to heaven forever. The goal is actually to receive our resurrected bodies. If we were to die today, yes, we would be with Him, but even those that are with Him are awaiting the day of the Lord and the resurrection of our bodies, when we will be clothed with immortality. Right? We're not just ghosts forever. We actually get to eat stuff. So our citizenship is heavenly. Heaven is the location from which our authority comes. And it's from there that we are eagerly awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just passively, not just casually waiting, eagerly awaiting the Messiah. This is not a secondary issue within the Christian life. It is front and center throughout the Scriptures from the beginning to the end of what it means to be among the righteous to be part of the ecclesia, the people of God. We have always been defined as those that we don't belong here. We're uncomfortable with this age, with this system. We're yearning for the heavenly kingdom. There's something in us that won't let it go. Burns within us. First Peter 1.13, Peter urged us to fix our hope, not just a little bit, completely on the grace that will be brought to us when? At the revelation. The Greek word is apocalypsis, at the revealing, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to skip forward. I don't. Have you guys been putting the verses up? Yeah. Okay. So for the guy, for the um, guy, I'm going to skip forward. Actually, Psalm 68, verse one. Let me hit this. This is very unusual. It says, "Let God arise." Let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee from before him. Uh, I was raised um, nominally, very nominally Catholic until about 11, 12 years old. My parents got divorced. How many people were raised Catholic? Quite a few. So um, don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-Catholic. I mean, I'm a son of the Reformation in that, you know, theologically I agree with all of the tenets of the Reformation, But there's certain things about liturgical stuff that I I like, I enjoy. Sometimes I'll listen to like Catholic chant or, you know, different things like that. Um, But the Catholic Church, it's always felt, and forgive me, it's always felt like a little bit effeminate. Um, You know, like the priest is like, In the unity of the Holy Spirit forever and ever you know and you're just like <laughs> it's never that that's that's never really resonated with me but you know what i love and again this is just personal taste I love these Eastern Orthodox, deep-throated, black-bearded, black-robed Russian-Greek guys. They're like, because this is their favorite psalm. If you listen to Eastern Orthodox chant, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee from being, as wax melts before the fire, so let them perish. Like this, is, I love when they chant this psalm. It's, it's like one of my favorites. Smoke wafting out of their beard. But what this is, it actually is, let God arise. What, what's being said here? So in the Exodus, when the Israelites were coming up out of the desert, The Ark of the Covenant, well, two things represented the presence of God. One was the pillar of cloud. That was the very presence of God. And the Ark of the Covenant also represents the presence of God. And whenever Israel would be encamped in a spot, whenever the cloud lifted and moved, Israel would follow it. And the Ark of the Covenant was designed to be carried. It had rings on the side. The priests would stick a pole through the rings, pick it up. And when they picked it up, Moses would say, "'Let God arise!' Let his enemies be scattered, and as long as they went with the presence of God before them, they would defeat their enemies. And they did. I mean, they boom. And so later, years later, David writes Psalm 68. So when, when David, now they're in the land, this is hundreds of years later, and the Ark of the Covenant hasn't been brought all the way up to its resting place on Mount Zion. It's back at the house of Obed Edom. And when David there was this big celebration, he goes, it's only a few miles. But when the time came to bring the ark to where it belonged, when they lifted it up, David, like Moses before him, said, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. And then came the big celebration, you know, when David was dancing in his sort of tunic and his wife, Michal, got all upset at him. Oh, how the king has dignified, has the king become a charismatic? <laughs> um, I thought we were <laughs> Baptists, I'm just kidding. But um, that, that's that whole episode. But the language here, What does it mean, let God arise? Because now you have Psalm 68. The term, essentially what it's inferring, it is the Maranatha cry of the Old Testament. This cry, this prayer, let God arise, what it is is it's saying, get up off of your throne and come down. Enough is enough. That's the idea. It's not just some general. It's get up off your throne and come down. As you saved the Israelites, as you did wonders, as you split the sea and defeated Pharaoh and his armies, come back and save us again. We're exhausted, Lord. Let God arise. Maranatha, come down, save us, O God. And you, when, once you start seeing it, once you start seeing the groan, once you start seeing the cry, you go, it's everywhere. It's not just in the New Testament. It's, in the, it's everywhere. It's stabilizing in a chaotic world. Hebrews 6, verse 19. This hope, this hope of what? This promise, this guarantee, this hope that he's coming back, we have as an anchor for our souls. A hope that is both sure and steadfast. I love this. When, because guaranteed, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. When the nation that you love starts melting down and falling apart, we have an anchor of hope. When your health, when your life, when whatever it might be, your marriage, your kids, when life is chaotic, out of control, we have an anchor of hope. It is firm, unmoving, secure. We can hold on to that. Everything else can fall apart. We have an anchor of hope for our souls. Does anybody here know the band Trampled by Turtles? <laughs> Nobody? I like bluegrass. They have. Did you? You like Trampled by Turtles? So they get that one song. But there's an anchor on the beach, so let the wind blow hard. I always listen to that and act like I'm listening to a biblical song. So which is what's necessary. So Hebrews 10 I, there's so much in Hebrews. It's very, the, the Maranatha cry is also very fellowship oriented. I was going to read this this morning. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, it says this Let us hold fast. Let us hold firmly. Let us cling to the confession of our hope. What is this talking about? So in the early church, when someone came to faith, they would publicly make a confession I confess. I believe that Jesus is Lord. I, you know, there would be almost a liturgical statement that they would make. They would, they would almost read their new statement of faith out loud. And what's amazing is when you read some of these collections of martyrdoms called martyrologies, they're very popular in the Eastern Orthodox and Catholic churches, oftentimes I have one book, it's called um, Orthodox Neo-Martyrs of the Ottoman Era or something like that. It's kind of an academic book, but it's a mar- martyrology from the Ottoman period, And you have all of these Muslims that were becoming Christians. And what's amazing when you read it, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but not only would they make confession, I believe Jesus is Lord, they would also renounce all of the things that they were formerly involved with. So they would say, and I confess, Muhammad is a false prophet, yada, yada. And oftentimes they would be martyred immediately in the public square because they would make confession in public. They would actually be like disemboweled and, you know, Torn asunder, like in the public square. So they get saved, they make confession, they go to heaven. I'm like, man, that seems a little easier, but I'm just kidding. Then all of this waiting and longing. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. What is our hope? Our hope is everything that we've just talked about. He's coming back. He came once, he's coming again. Let us do so without wavering. Let us hold firmly. Why? Because at the, at the foundation of it all is this, and this is what it boils down to. He who promised, he who made us, and he who has made these promises over and over and over again throughout this book with absolute clarity. And just in case you're not aware, he has a really good track record up until this point. He who promised is faithful. We can trust him. Why do we hold fast to this prom- these promises? Because he made them. And he is faithful. And let us consider. Let us be cognizant. Let us be aware of how we can regularly get together, just like tonight, in order to encourage one another, stimulate one another on to love and good deeds. And then this is the message for um, the live streamers. I'm kidding, sort of. Not forsaking the gathering together, as is the habit of some. Sitting in bed, drinking coffee, watching the morning service. <laughs> seems, seems nice though, actually. It says, I know we're getting together virtually or whatever. The, he says, Get together deliberately on a regular basis, gather together, and, and encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. I'm not the most discerning guy in the world but I'm pretty sure that that day is rapidly approaching. Like it doesn't, I would even go so far as to say it doesn't take the discernment of a rock to recognize that that day is rapidly approaching. And there's a neat wordplay here. It's essentially saying this, gather together and encourage one another concerning what? The day of gathering. And what is the day of gathering? It's the day when we will be gathered together to meet him in the clouds, and so as the day of gathering gets closer, be deliberate about gathering together to remind each other and encourage one another about the soon coming day of gathering. It's real. It's coming. Right? Because as soon as we leave, as soon as we leave, the entire world system will discourage us. It's just the nature of it. Like the air that we breathe is discouraging. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. But I mean, the messaging, the media, everything that we hear, and, we, and the, the principalities will bombard us with discouragement. So get together on a regular cyclical basis and encourage one another. Tell each other about the wonderful things the Lord is doing. Testify. Did you hear about the miracle? Did you hear about what the Lord's doing here? Hey, check out this video of the underground Iranian believers. Can you believe this? They're getting baptized. They're excited. Unimaginable things. And we go, wow. Everything he said, he said he would do, he's doing. Who would ever think that there would be a massive movement of Iranian believers praying for Israel? This is craziness. Wow, his word's true. Did you hear what the Lord did? You know, just Get together, encourage one another. Because the world is incredibly discouraging. It's the nature of it. I'm actually going to wrap this up here. It's also holiness-oriented, and this is very important. Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. A man has been appointed... The man, Christ Jesus, has been appointed to judge the living and the dead. Now, we enter the kingdom by the blood of Jesus and by the blood alone, by grace through faith alone, okay? But we all will stand and give an account for the deeds done in this life, whether good or bad. And our faithfulness or our lack of faithfulness in this age, think of this life as an internship, Our role, our job, our position in the age to come will very much be determined by our faithfulness or our lack of faithfulness in this age. Come, Jesus says, you who have been faithful in little, take charge over ten cities. You know, the unknown, the unknown, you know, people that aren't up here on the platform and preaching and whatever. The people that are just faithfully doing what the Lord, he says, come, now I'm giving you all this. But to many, it says there will be loss. We'll be saved, but there'll be loss. So that day is coming. The Apostle John, 1 John 3, 2 through 3, says this. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So the more that we think about and meditate on the age to come and the judgment to come, when the deed's done in this life, will be, quite frankly, shouted from the rooftops. And everyone's internet histories will be broadcast on the radio. And our thought histories and our everything, everything will be laid bare. Who can stand? No one, other than through the blood of Christ. We purify ourselves in preparation for that day. So let me end at the conclusion of the book of Revelation. It says, the spirit and the bride, what are they crying? What is the Spirit? The Spirit is God himself that's in us. The Holy Spirit, God himself is crying. And the bride, that's us. We are all crying out, come, come Lord Jesus. The prayer that will be on the lips of the church globally in this season before his return is Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus, arise, O Lord. And so the scriptures say that will be the case. Now many of us feel it, but we also know that we need to It needs to be increased in our lives. We know that the American church needs this. The whole church will be crying Maranatha before he returns. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your really good news. It's the only message that makes any sense. It's the only message that fills our hearts with hope. Lord, we ask that you would burn into all of us tonight the Maranatha cry, the groaning. Paul the Apostle said, all of creation. The Spirit himself within us is groaning. Lord, help us not to silence the groan, but to partner with the groan that's in your very heart, that it would motivate us, that it would move us to action, to live lives of holiness, of purity, of eager expectation, of urgency to proclaim the gospel, to share the words of life with those that are still flailing away in darkness. Give us boldness to snatch as many out of the fire as possible. Give us a steadfast heart in order that we can hold firm until that day when we'll see you face to face. We thank you for these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. For more information, if you're in need of prayer or just want to connect with the community, go to reslife.org. Follow us on social media or email us anytime at reslife at reslife.org. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you again soon.